following audio is from Fathom Church in downtown Littleton, Colorado. More information about Fathom can be found at fathomchurch.org. Today, Matthew 13. Uh, Now, I mentioned a couple of weeks ago that my first job after becoming a Christian in high school uh, was at a Christian bookstore. I told you about this, and, uh, and I told you about some of the weird things that you can find in a Christian bookstore, especially uh, in the early 2000s, okay? Uh, a couple more things. You ever heard testaments? Testaments, okay. Testaments, uh, Christian mints. We sold them. We sold Christian, they were mints wrapped in scripture because secular mints just won't cut it, Right? So, testaments, okay? Uh, Man, the Christian bookstore had tons of art. I don't know if you've been to a Christian bookstore, but there's tons of art. All the art features two things, a lighthouse or an eagle. Or, in the best art, an eagle landing on a lighthouse. That's how you know it's a Christian art. Normally, it's got a little verse, you know, wings of eagles or something like that, okay? Uh, The Christian bookstore had lots and lots of these sorts of things. There were loads of those WWJD bracelets, just in big bins, WWJD all over the place. And we had the, the, the kind of underrated cousin of WWJD, which is FROG, fully rely on God. Anybody wear a frog bracelet? No, it didn't catch on quite as, quite as hot as the WWJD, okay? And I mentioned books and, you know, different, different types of books. Specifically, the books that I mentioned were books by kids claiming to have gone to heaven. And nobody laughed at that joke. And I was offended and slightly confused, okay? So just a little confused. Like, did y'all read these books? Did you read the heaven books? Did you like them? Did you like reading those heaven books? I mean, there's been a wave of these popular books from people claiming to have kind of a near-death experience or they're in the ER and they code out for a minute and, you know, they shock them back to life and they've been to heaven, something like that. They have some sort of heaven experience and then they write a book. The most popular of these books in the past decade was one called Heaven is for Real. Okay, Heaven is for Real. It was a book uh, first and then they made an even more mediocre movie out of that book, okay, Christian movie. Uh, It's about a four-year-old pastor's kid who during an emergency surgery slips from consciousness and enters heaven. Okay, that's the premise. Now, now, you can already tell that I'm judging. You can just sense the judginess, okay? Uh, So let me make a disclaimer here. Uh, You may be disappointed to know that I have never actually myself been to heaven or hell. Although the southern United States during summer is pretty much the same. Same deal. Texas, yikes, okay? But, but, but based on your laugh, laughter that was diminished last week, some of you may not like what I'm about to tell you, but, but here's the truth. God does not intend for us to learn about the afterlife from people today who claim to have gone. That's not where he intends for you to learn about the truth of the great beyond, Okay? We're supposed to learn about the afterlife from the word of God. Okay, just like we're supposed to learn everything about God from the word of God. All things in the Christian life, we are to learn from the word of God. Well, pastor, are you saying that little boy just made this thing up? Are you saying this little boy's story isn't true? I said, I don't know. I don't want to tread on any you know, beliefs here, but let's do it. All right? Listen, it, it would seem, I'm, I'm not making any judgment on heaven is for real because I haven't read it and I'm not gonna, okay? Um, 
But it would seem that some people can say whatever they want about the afterlife, let alone anything, as long as they frame it in their own experience. Like, as long as it's my experience, then who can argue with my experience? Who can argue with that little boy? Did you, no, no, you didn't go to heaven. Well, yes, I did. Like, who can argue with that? The answer is you can't, but the word of God can. The word of God is the only thing that can argue with our experience. And all we need to know about the afterlife is found in this book, not in heaven is for real, the book or good God help you the movie. Okay. All right. So I'm calling today's sermon. This hell is for real. You picked the wrong Sunday to visit. (laughs) It's not quite as hot seller as the four-year-old seeing Grammy in heaven. Okay. Hell is for real. Just as fanciful as some of these heaven tales are, um, are, are what people think about the doctrine of hell. The doctrine of hell. Now, I have preached uh, for, well, this church has been around for six and a half years, so I've preached a lot here. Uh, I have never preached a sermon specifically on the doctrine of hell. I've mentioned hell many times, but I've never preached a sermon specifically on this doctrine. Uh, but we've been in Matthew 13, and, and, and there are seven parables in this parable discourse from Jesus in this chapter. And today we reach the seventh parable, and really the climactic parable of this chapter. And it's uh, a parable called the parable of the net. And this parable is about judgment. It's a parable about hell. And for all the guesswork around hell and all the controversy about the doctrine of hell, Jesus actually spoke and taught on hell very often in his gospels, very often. And this is a parable in which Jesus warns us about hell. Now, um, this parable is, uh, it's very similar to a parable we've already covered. John preached a few weeks ago, uh, the parable of the wheat and the weeds or the wheat and the tares. Uh, And in that parable, the focus is on the time when the wheat and the weeds are growing up together. And that God does not rip the weeds out until the great harvest. God allows for both good and evil to kind of exist and to grow, as it were, together in this age. And then in the end, judgment will come and they will be separated. But that parable really really focuses on the time period when those are growing up together. Today's parable focuses on the judgment, on the separation. And this is why it's the very last one. So we're going to talk about hell. Let's dig into this parable and see what God has for us here. Matthew 13, we're going to start in verse 47. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. Okay, this is the parable of the net, the parable of the net. Uh, the first thing you need to understand in this parable is that there are three different ways of fishing in ancient Israel. There's three ways that you can go about fishing. The first uh, way to fish in the ancient Near East is the way that we fish. Okay, uh, so I fly fish, not, not well, but I, but I wet a line from now on. You know, I, I've caught a couple. All right, so I fly fish. Uh, this was one way that, that they would fish in Jesus' time, okay? They would hook a line, and they'd throw that line in and try and catch a fish. Um, you see this in Matthew 17, where Jesus commands Peter to go to the sea to cast a hook and take the first fish that comes up, open its mouth, find a shekel, give it as a tithe offering. 
So he throws a line into the ocean and catches a fish. This is one way that they fished in ancient Israel. The second way to fish in the first century was by casting a net. Okay, casting a net. Uh, So back in Matthew chapter 4, when Jesus is calling his first disciples, he's walking by the Sea of Galilee. He saw two brothers, Simon, who will be renamed Peter, uh, his, his, uh, his brother Andrew, and they are casting a net into the sea. It says, for they were fishermen. And then Jesus says, I will make you fishers of men. You know that story. So the net in this case would be like a large Frisbee. I mean, they would li- literally, they just throw this net out into the sea. It would spin out like a large Frisbee or a disc. And uh, the ends of that Frisbee net thing would land. And there were weights on those. They would drop down over like a school of fish. And then they would pull a rope to cinch that down. And they would pull in uh, the catch, the fish. That was like a one-man, maybe two-man job there. But there's a third way of fishing in the, old, in, in the New Testament. And, uh, and, and this net that Jesus talks about in our parable today is actually a different Greek term than is used when Peter and his brothers are casting their nets or they're leaving their nets. This is a different Greek term. And the net that Jesus is talking about in this parable is what's known as a troll net or a drag net. Okay, it's a different type of net. This net would have been used uh, in a much larger situation, uh, something uh, at the largest scale, like a commercial fishing operation. Okay, uh, And a drag net, here's how it would work. Uh, it would have one point of that net that was a fixed point, whether that was on land or on a boat, it was fixed. And, and then uh, between the fixed point, they would extend the net to another boat of some sort, uh, the moving point, okay? And they would let that net settle down. There were weights on the bottom, like rocks on the bottom and cork on the top. So it formed something of a curtain in the sea, okay? And uh, some would stretch, I read this week, some would stretch for as far as a half mile. So they're huge nets, one pivot, one moving, they would extend it. And then the moving boat would swing around moving that net until eventually it came in contact with that fixed point. And anything that was in that section, any fish that were in that section would be trapped by this dragnet, by this trolling net, okay? Jesus is using this illustration because he wants us to get a couple things from this image. First, this is a huge net. This isn't a fishing pole. This isn't a small one-man deal. This is a huge net. And because of its size, it would universally gather all different types of fish. Fish of every kind is what the text says. It would gather ones that were good for eating and ones that were not good for eating. It would gather ones that are healthy and it would gather ones that were sick. It would gather ones that were good. The biblical language says good. And it would gather ones that are bad. The net was indiscriminate. It would just catch any fish that got in its way. That's a drag net. That's a trolling net. And that's what's happening in this parable. So let's look at verse 48. When that net was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers, but threw away the bad. Okay. Fishermen get to the shore. They drag that net full of all the fish and they start to sort. And it says they sort the good into containers. Okay, maybe these are the ones that are good for selling. Maybe these are ones that are ceremonial or ritualistically clean, 
right? If you know Old Testament, there are some sea creatures that aren't clean for Hebrews to eat. And so maybe they're pitching the unclean ones. Uh, we don't really know, but, but they were considered good. And so they were, they were put into one category. And then the other category is bad. And those fish, they're thrown away. The bad fish are thrown away. Now, there's really only one thing to note in this verse that I want to point out. Uh, It gives us a hint about what's going on here before we get to the next verses. And those are the words, sat down. When, 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 When the men bring the fish onto the shore, it says they sat down and they began to sort the fish. Sitting down is a little literary hint for us. It's a hint towards the son of man, okay? Because sitting down in judgment is something that would, will show up in Romans 14 and in 2 Corinthians 5. Like essentially the, those texts speak of us, of every one of us sitting before the judgment seat. And we know this to be kind of a true thing in our, cons, uh, our, our, our moment today as well. The, the judge sits, the defendant rises, and the judge pronounces his verdict. Now, if we only had this parable, we might glean that this is about judgment, but we might not. We might not. But we're thankful that Jesus actually gives us the interpretation of this parable. So, so here we go. Here's the interpretation from Jesus, verse 49. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous. So this is judgment. Jesus has given us help here. So it will be at the end of the day. This parable is talking about judgment day. And, and here's what we know about that. On that day, on, the, on judgment day, the day that Jesus will return, every single one of us will, before God, have to give an account of our lives and we will be judged. Okay, that's the first thing. Second thing is this. On that day, there will be a separation of these two categories. It's no longer good and bad, but it's the evil and the righteous. There's a separation that happens. So, so now hear me. This is an important theological note here. Judgment day is not simply for those who are not saved. You will be judged on judgment day. I will be judged on judgment day. I think when we think of judgment day, we think of like Hitler, right? Judgment day is for murderers and rapists and bad guys, which is true. It's very true, but, but, but hear me, it's also for housemakers, it's for bankers, it's for students, it's for pastors, it's for all. On that day, this is a big net catching every type of fish to be sorted. It's the image here. And so Jesus, he's interpreting this parable and he ends with a terrifying verse. Verse 50 is terrifying. Separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So Matthew talks a lot about hell in his gospel, not just here, in many different places. And there are two primary metaphors that he uses when talking about eternal punishment. Uh, First is utter darkness or, or, or with weeping and kind of gnashing of teeth. He uses this phrase four times in his gospel. Um, But then there's the second one uh, where he he calls the fires of Gehenna, the fires of hell. And he uses that image seven times. And he uses both images in this context, in this parable. 
The two are combined here. Weeping notes the sorrow of those being punished. They're sorrowful. They feel it. And then the gnashing or the grinding of teeth could refer to the torment that they will suffer or or their despair or even like the intense anger that they might feel. We're not quite sure, but it, it is extremely horrible. It's painting a picture that this is horrible. Now, now we're going to, that, that's the text. We're going to extrapolate some principles from the text there. But I want to say this, like, like I've said in the past, uh, if, if you're not offended by some point parts of the Bible, you're probably not reading it. You, if, if you aren't personally offended by some of this, like it's either you, you don't understand it or you're just not reading it and you pretend like you read it. You just check your daily reader off and you don't actually read it because this is, this is some disturbing stuff. I mean, this, this is the kind of stuff that grates against our modern sensibilities. The doctrine of hell is the first and foremost, most um, divisive doctrine out there. If there's any doctrine in the Bible, now hear me, that, that I wish wasn't there, it was this doctrine. This is the doctrine I wish wasn't there, but, it, but, but just because I wish it doesn't eliminate it. It is there. Hell is for real. Charles Spurgeon, the great Baptist preacher, says this of, uh, when, when speaking about hell. He says this. He says, there are such weighty things. These are such weighty things such that when I dwell upon them, I feel far more inclined to sit down and weep than to stand up and speak to you. So this is a heavy doctrine. But if you evaluate what what pastors should preach on based on the example of what Christ talked about in the Gospels, then we should be preaching on hell. Jesus preached on hell more than any other biblical figure that we have. Our generation just doesn't like this. No big churches today preaching on hell because you don't make big churches by preaching on hell. It's convicting, actually. It's convicting that we say so little about this doctrine. So what is the doctrine of hell? Let's define it, okay? Uh, Theologian Wayne Grudem defines hell in his systematic theology like this. Hell is a place of eternal conscious punishment for the wicked. It's a place of eternal conscious punishment for the wicked. This is, there's some nuances to this uh, definition that might be debatable, but I think the broad strokes there are, are pretty orthodox, are pretty agreed upon. Let me, let me work through this. Let's break this down. We see this definition in our text and in plenty of other texts. So I would like to break this down into some bite-sized pieces. So let's do this first. Uh, point one, hell is eternal. Hell is is eternal. There's a popular heresy that hell has a determinate length and that one day it will end. But biblically, I'm compelled to tell you that hell is eternal. Okay, Matthew 25, verse 46, I'll put this on the screen, talking about judgment, Jesus says this, and these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. So the word that's used in that verse for eternal life is the exact same word that is used for eternal punishment. So whatever eternal life is, however long you think hell,
heaven is. Eternity with Jesus is. Jesus uses the same language to talk about hell, about the other place. So I would say if, if eternal life is eternal, then eternal punishment must also be eternal. That's hell. I heard this quote from Jonathan Edwards, uh, again, another American preacher, uh, just made me depressed, so I thought I'd share it with you. <laughs> it's a longer quote, but I, I mean, I think it gets this home. So, so just listen to this quote and just kind of try and settle into it because uh, it, should, it should make you depressed. Edwards says this, if you take these things seriously, you have to imagine yourself cast into a fiery oven glowing with heat. And imagine that your body was going to lie there for one quarter of an hour, 15 minutes, full of fire, inside and out, feeling every fiber of it the whole time. What horror would you feel at the entrance to such a furnace? And how long would that quarter of an hour seem to you? If it was measured by an hourglass, how slowly would the time seem to go? And after you had endured it for one minute, how overbearing would it be to you to think that you had another 14 left? But what if you knew you must lie there enduring that torment in its fullness for 24 hours? How much greater even if you knew you must endure it for a whole year? How much greater still if you knew you must endure it for a thousand years? But wouldn't your heart sink if you knew you must bear it forever and ever? That there would be no end? That after millions of millions of ages, your torment would be no nearer to an end than before, and that you should never, never be rescued? but your torment in hell will be immeasurably greater than this. How utterly inexpressible and inconceivable, how your heart and soul would sink in such a case. Hell is eternal. That's the first point. Second point is this. Hell is punishment. It's punishment. The text says that there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. And that's just one of several incidents, uh, indications in, in this gospel that there will be kind of this conscious punishment in hell. Another I'll point out to you from, from the gospel of Luke actually is the, the parable of the rich man and Lazarus in Luke 16. I'll put this up on the screen. It says this, the rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades... Being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. Hell is the punishment for the sins of this life. It's punishment. But you ask, well, if people are conscious in hell, can they still repent? Like, couldn't they still repent? Like, wouldn't they just repent of their sins there? As soon as they felt that fiery flame, that fiery furnace, wouldn't they just say, God, I'm sorry? And, and wouldn't God be merciful to them in that moment? 
That's a great question. But Revelation 22, verse 11 says this, let the evildoers still do evil and the filthy still be filthy and the righteous still do right and the holy still be holy. And he's speaking of eternity in heaven and in hell and that that John is, is saying in that text that the fate of the righteous actually matched how they lived and the fate of the wicked do so as well. The people in hell, they, hear me, they will never repent. They remain filthy. They remain haters of God's authority. Their hearts remain unjust and corrupted. So you may have heard that hell uh, has a door that's locked from the inside. You heard this idea? Yes, They may hate the torment of hell, but listen to me, they hate the authority of Christ more. The famous atheist, uh, Frederick Nietzsche, uh, who if you're lucky or unlucky, depending on your persuasion, you might read at some point, but Frederick Nietzsche said that he would rather go into nothingness. He's an atheist. He would rather go into nothingness than surrender his will to the God of the Bible. And C.S. Lewis, I mean, you're not a good Christian pastor if you don't mention C.S. Lewis, right? But in his, in his masterpiece, uh, The Great Divorce, which I would commend to you, The Great Divorce is a fictional story that C.S. Lewis writes about a tour bus, a tour bus that, that goes down to hell. It's from heaven. It goes down to hell and it brings hell beings, those who have been damned, brings them back up to see the outskirts of, of heaven, it's a great, great narrative, and it's fiction, okay? So, so we don't want to like derive our theology from C.S. Lewis, okay? But, but he makes a point that almost no one from hell, even upon seeing the glories of heaven, will choose to go there. Almost to a point, they all say, get me back on the bus. See, the Bible teaches clearly that after judgment, that after judgment, hell is a result of a life spent in separation and rebellion to God. Hell is fruit of a life lived. It's punishment. So you might ask this, okay, well, how literal are we talking then? Like, I don't like that Jonathan Edwards quote either. So how literal? Are there literal fires? Is there literal sulfur? Are there literal worms? Is this literal darkness that we're talking about? Chris, tell me, how, how literal is this? Well, the images are awful. The images are awful. Fire, burning, sulfur, torture, eternal death. I mean, th- that metaphor is really awful. So what's metaphoric and what's literal? Well, even if those things are symbols, even if they are metaphor, the point is how horrible they are. When the Bible talks of eternal life in heaven, okay, it uses metaphor as well. The Bible talks about heaven and the reality is always much greater than the symbol, right? We talked about this last week a little bit, that that the streets are made of gold and the gates are made of pearls, the pearly gates, right? And all that that's saying is that it's probably not literal. Gold is pretty malleable. You wouldn't want to be walking all over that. Pearly gates, I mean, use the pearl for something else, bro, right? But, but the reason why they use those things is it just means that the most valuable things that we can get our minds around are going to be building materials in heaven. 
Gold is like asphalt in heaven. Pearl is like iron in heaven. And so it is with the symbols of hell. The symbol is just the closest earthly representation to the terrible reality. Whatever they're pointing to must be unspeakably awful. Hell is punishment. And thirdly, number three, hell is for the wicked. Hell is for the wicked. It's for the bad fish. It's for the weeds that grew up next to the wheat. It's, it's for the evil ones. Hell is for the wicked. It's for wicked people. Now, now here's the interesting thing. Most people assume they're going to heaven. I bet you go downtown, you start pulling people. Not a whole lot of people are saying, yeah, I'm headed straight for hell. There might be some sadistic people that say that, but most people, listen, most people believe that they're going to go to heaven. Like as long as they don't commit some sort of heinous sin or become like a blatant Satanist or like Hitler, like cause a genocide or something like that, that's who hell's for. Hell's not for regular people. But the scripture presents the, the opposite of this, church. Now, God didn't create hell for us. He actually created us for heaven and he created hell for Satan and for the demons. But in the rebellion of the human race in Genesis 3, in which, by the way, we are all participants in, at that point, we became destined for hell. So people will sometimes then bring this up as an argument. Well, that doesn't seem fair. It certainly doesn't seem fair that there would be an eternity in hell for only 70 or 80 years of sin. That doesn't seem to add up. That's not good math, pastor. How does that work? And this is where the doctrine of purgatory shows up. And this is where the doctrine of, of kind of uh, uh, a temporal, non, non-eternal hell shows up. Um, but I, I want to argue that that is because we wrongly assume that we understand the extent of the evil done when we sin against God. I'll break this down. It'll, it'll help, I promise. Sin gains its wickedness by the one it's committed against. The severity of of your punishment for a crime is based on who you commit that crime against. I'll I'll illustrate. Um, If you lie to me, like I, you know, I meet you in the hallway. I say, hey, how are you? Welcome to Fathom. What's your name? And you say, my name's Leslie. And your name's not Leslie? Now that's weird. (laughs) But that lie does not affect me that much. There's not much I can do about it, okay? But now hear me. If you are under oath in a courtroom and then you lie under oath, well, that's perjury. And depending on the severity of that perjury, the punishment is much greater. Who you sin against matters. Uh, If you steal from me, depending on what you take, it's probably a misdemeanor because I don't have a whole lot of stuff that you could take that would make it a felony, okay? But if you steal secrets from your country, from, from, from your country, okay, you pull like a Snowden or something like that, that's treason, potentially punishable by death. See, who you sin against matters. Your punishment incrementally rises depending on who it is and the holiness of that 
person. Sin gains its wickedness by whom the sin is directed against. Now, uh, what happens when you sin against the infinitely holy God of the universe? Well, that sin is infinitely wicked. Sin against an eternal God warrants an eternal punishment. It's not the duration or the seriousness of the crime committed, but the dignity of the one against whom it was committed. That's what determines the severity of the punishment. And that's why I'll say hell is for the wicked. It's for the wicked. Aren't you glad you came to church today? We had free coffee though, so. All right, right on the heels of this parable, Jesus asks his disciples a question. So let's look at Matthew 13. Pick it up in verse 51. That's a heavy, heavy parable. And then Jesus says this. Have you understood all these things? And they said to him, yes. I'm so glad he puts this here. I'm so glad he puts this here, church. Have you understood? Have you put it all together? Have you got all this kingdom of God stuff? I mean, you've been listening to these parables for week after week. Have you, have you got it? Good and evil are going to grow up together. Okay, the good is going to continue to permeate, to grow, to invade, to infect. And that in order to be a part of this kingdom, you're going to have to sell everything. You're going to have to get rid of everything so that you can buy this pearl, to buy this treasure, give everything that you have for all that Christ is. Have you put all of this together? You see, it's going to end like this and the good and the evil are going to be together until that final separation. And then the separation happens and it's great for those who are on the good side and it's awful. It is terrible for those who are not. Do you have this? You getting this? And his disciples say to him, yeah, we understand it. We understand Jesus. We get it. We see this. Hell is for real. We got this. It's horrible. It's eternal. It's conscious punishment for the wicked. But, but Jesus is like, it doesn't have to be that way for you. It doesn't have to be that way for you. This is the why of, of Jesus' parables. The why, why, why does Jesus teach on hell more than anybody else? Because he wants us to hear. Those who have ears, let them hear. He wants us to hear. He wants us to understand. See, Jesus Christ suffered the full penalty for sin on the cross so that we wouldn't have to. This is the good news of the gospel. If you've read the Apostles' Creed, I almost said Apollo Creed. That's a different creed. The Apostles' Creed says this, that Jesus Christ suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. And on the third day, he rose again from the dead. Have you understood these things? Jesus preached on hell more than anyone else in the scriptures because only he can fathom how horrible it is. And you don't have to go to hell. Jesus died so you could be with him. So you could enjoy eternal life with him. But you have to receive it sincerely. You have to believe it. It's an invitation that you have to respond to personally. Have you understood these things? Have you surrendered in repentance to this? Have you understood all these things? His disciples say, yes. Have you? And then he ends with verse 52. This is our last verse. 
And Jesus said to them, Therefore, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who brings out his treasure, what is new and what is old. It's like another little mini parable right there in verse 52. But the disciples say, yeah, we get it, Jesus. We understand all these things. And Jesus says, all right, then you're like scribes for the kingdom of heaven. A scribe was one who was trained and who taught and who preached. You're now scribes of the kingdom of heaven. It's time to bring out the old and the new. You've been trained in the kingdom and now it's time to bring it out. It's time to share it. See, the reason why it's so hard for us to think about the doctrine of hell, the reason why we're offended by it, the reason why we don't like this, the reason why it's not preached by very many young preachers anymore. Man, 50 years ago, you'd hear hell and brimstone all the time. Nobody, we've overcorrected away from that. But the reason is because God has put into our hearts a portion of his love for people created in in his image, even horrific sinners who rebel against him. We still, in us, in the Imago Dei in us, there's a part of us that wants to see them redeemed, that wants to see them loved. So now that you understand it, it's time to spread it. Now that you have the treasure, it's time to share it out. Now that you've been infected by the yeast, it's time to get some others infected. Now now that you know the horrifying realities of hell, it's time to get to work sharing that there's still hope. Listen, in my life, if, if if it hadn't been for my friend inviting me when I was in high school to his youth group, And if it hadn't been for some really awkward youth leaders just investing in me, just loving me, walking with me, man, if it wasn't for this one young life retreat up in the mountains, man, I'm not loving and following Jesus. And that's someone for you too. Who's that someone? Maybe it's a friend shared Christ with you. Maybe it was a Sunday school teacher just made things make sense. Maybe it was a youth pastor or maybe even your parents. They were that person for you. It was somebody who got it and they wanted you to get it. And so they shared it with you. Who is that for you? And by the way, who do you need to be that for? See, I hadn't planned on preaching uh, this passage today. I hadn't planned on it. I was going to finish up Matthew 13 and do the very end of the text before we move into our fall series. Uh, and I just kind of planned on skipping this parable, if I'm honest, okay? Uh, I thought it would work to just kind of say, yeah, that's pretty much the same as the wheat and the weeds. So I don't need to, it seemed redundant. I was going to skip this entirely. But then I'm studying, And I'm reading through it. And in the back of my head, I'm like, there's college students coming. Don't screw this one up. There's going to be college students there. Be funny. There's going to be college students there. They're not going to want to hear about hell. And then I read Jesus. And hear me, those disciples aren't much older than our college students here. Some of them were younger. Jesus thought this was important enough to preach on hell. So who are we to do any different? Hell is for real. But Jesus suffered hell for us that we might find life in him. Have you understood all these things? To those who have ears, let them hear. Let's pray. Father, we bless you today. We honor you today. We trust that every word in your scriptures are 
are profitable. They're meant for us. They're meant to correct us, to rebuke us, to encourage us, to build us up. Even a, a scary passage on, on hell, on eternal punishment, eternal separation. And Lord, I do pray that some of us would hear and understand this. Maybe some of us for the first time would believe that it's only through a relationship with Jesus Christ that we find eternal life rather than eternal death. And I pray that, pray that for our friends online, our family online, people who hear this message on a podcast, Lord, Lord, save, do the things that you do. Holy Spirit, save someone from the, the horrific reality of hell. But then I also pray for those of us who do understand this, who have been saved, but have just kind of gotten lukewarm to this idea. And our friends, our family members, our co-workers, our neighbors, those who are all around us are destined for this eternal punishment. Lord, would, would that stir in us something, a desire to share, a desire to be a scribe of the kingdom of heaven? that we'd bring it out and we'd share and we'd, we would love people with the same amount of love that it took for someone to love us and to share the kingdom with us. We pray for evangelism to be born out of this, this scary, this terrible, this horrifying doctrine. Lord, bring more men, women, and students to yourself because of this doctrine, we pray. So help us, Holy Spirit, to believe these things in our heads and move them into our hearts that would lead to transformation and depth with you. We pray all this in the name of Jesus and by the power of the Holy Spirit.